as a woman in her 20s, when you have things physically start to change for you, it's something that back then you didn't quite talk about as much. I think we're in a much different world now where people are willing to talk about flaws. They're willing to talk about things that are bothering them. It's a lot more open. I think social media has had an impact on that. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to Social Convos. I'm your host, Diego, together with my co-host, Jean-Luc. Jean-Luc, it's good to be back. How have you been? Yeah, it's it's weird seeing the setting. It's like we color matched our outfits with the background today. It, it looks it looks kind of good. I'm, I'm excited to be back. And I'm actually kind of excited about our guest for today because we scheduled her in like, I think, somewhere last year, but unfortunately the, the, the schedule didn't work in the end. But today she's here and I'm really excited because there are a lot of interesting topics I like to talk about. And I just in general, I guess that talk about personal development a lot. So I'm, I'm already excited. How about you? Yeah, definitely. Personal development and especially just the, the person behind it and the journey is always intriguing. So Without further ado, why don't you introduce our guest? Okay, so our guest for today is Kelly Knowles, who is actually a certified trainer, a coach, and a business professional. And she has come out with a book last year. It's about chin hairs. We're definitely going to segue a little bit into that as well. But also, there's different kind of things that we can talk about because she's also a, a Toastmaster International certified, which is something that in Suriname we're not really familiar with, but it's a really big brand. And of course, we want to talk I, about, yeah. I Go thought ahead. I saw it in Suriname, Toastmaster. Yeah, there is. There is a Toastmaster yeah. in Suriname. Not an active, okay. but it, it's, it's, and I also, I think also in the Rotary, I'm, I, I think in our Rotary Club, there's also an international connection between Rotary International and the Toastmaster. So as you can hear, I'm really excited to talk with, with Kelly, not just about the book, but also the life experience, the story behind it and why she decided to make her personal brand the main brand for everything that she does. So without further ado, let's bring in Kelly Knowles. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you, guys. You guys do your homework. I'm going to be on my best behavior. This is exciting. <laughs> no, that's so, awesome. So, so just to start off, for, for those who are not familiar with Toastmasters, just could you give us a little bit of an insight in what Toastmasters actually implies? Sure. One of the things I love about Toastmasters is probably one of the most diverse, inclusive organizations because it is international and worldwide. It's over 100 years old and there are clubs literally all over the world. And it is a club for speaking, but it's not just about giving speeches. It's about really improving your communication skills. And I joined back in 2017 because I'd always been told I was a great speaker and I was intimidated about joining Toastmasters because I thought, what if I join and I find out I stink? And so I just finally decided, you know what? I've got to have a growth mindset about this. If I stink, the only way is up. If I'm good, I get better. And one of the things I love about Toastmasters is it brings together people from all backgrounds, from all experiences to that common goal of becoming a better communicator. And that's just so cool. And the club that I was in, I was probably the oldest one in the club, but really helped me to get to know other ages, learn from each other, because I really believe we are better together. And Toastmasters is a great organization to be able to do that. I also started a Toastmasters club at my previous law firm. I'm not a lawyer. And it was a great tool to bring together all levels in the law firm for the purpose of learning how to communicate better. And of course we do speeches, but there's so much more, so much more in it. Yeah, so, communication is a key in everything I yeah. would say. And you just mentioned, you know, many people thought you are a great speaker. You thought you are a great speaker. So when you just, uh, when you joined the organization or the club, like what was something about speaking that you thought was like, 
oh wait this is an aha moment like i can improve on this or i never thought about it like that uh, thanks diego what i just did so once you start listening for the ums and the uhs and the ahs you can't unlisten to it and when you think about how distracted we are today i get distracted so fast i think they i have the attention span of a goldfish now one of the things that Toastmasters does is it helps you to really get more in control of your speaking, especially if you're nervous, that extemporaneous speaking. You learn how to get all of those filler words out and really be able to form your thoughts quickly and communicate them quickly. Because so many times we're not in a situation where we have prep time. We're on the fly. We're being asked a question in an elevator or in a meeting. And that's where Toastmasters is so powerful because it allows you to really quickly gather and convey your thoughts in a way that can be received. And that was a gift. And, you know, if you ask me to speak in front of a group, you just ask me to Disneyland. It's my favorite thing to do. I've been speaking in front of groups since I was little, but I knew I could refine that I could keep getting better. And I think that that's just so powerful and because communications, you said it's a bottom line so often. I just tried to listen the whole moment you were explaining that to a single and I couldn't catch any. Yeah. I heard so, you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. That's interesting that you actually heard too. So, so how do you, how did you train that? For instance, I remember we once did a drinking game, like with somebody who had a lot of us and that was insane because you don't, like you said, you don't realize it until you start really focusing on that just per se. You're not actually listening to the, the content anymore, but just when the person is saying that. So what are some tips and tricks to, 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 to improve on that? You know, even if you hate the sound of your own voice, it's about getting out of your head and recognizing it's not about being the next new celebrity or anything like that. It's about your communication style. My biggest challenge is the so and so. So I was able to kind of drill out the ums, but then I would find myself going, so then, so tape yourself, actually record yourself. And when I would do this with people, They'd be, they were like, no way am I going to record myself. And I would always give them that freedom. You know what? Record yourself on your phone and then delete it. The end goal is to hear your cadence, to hear what your filler's words are like. Huge filler word. My mother used to pick on me when I was a kid. How many times are you going to say the word like? And I still have to work on drilling that out of my speech. So we, so we all have those filler words. And if you just tape yourself, I'm sure you guys go back through your podcast and the various, you know, events that you've done and you've kind of done a, what I call a post-mortem. What worked? Where do I want to do things better? Re start with recording yourself. Even if you promise yourself no one else gets to hear this and you delete it immediately, you're going to see how much you improve. And that gets really exciting. That's yeah. really confronting, actually, to, to think yeah. of it because yeah, you're you're gonna have when you're gonna be critical and you're gonna be like, yeah. you're gonna be like, hey, this I, this is something I could do better. This is something, and I think that's also part of the mindset that you're going towards. Mm -hmm. uh, how how important is that to, to change your mindset behind it to be able to grow? Oh, it's huge. And you know, the other thing is getting out of your own head. So many times you're going to hear a lot more than anybody else does. And so what I always tell people when we're thinking about speaking, it's a conversation. We have conversations probably every day. We are either having a conversation with our pet. We're having a conversation with somebody we're ordering food from. We're, we're having conversations every day. So if you can kind of take the pressure off and let yourself know, hey, at the end of the day, I'm just having a conversation with someone. I think that really kind of helps to frame all of that out. Thinking about growth, there's a great book by a lady named Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K, and it's called Mindset. And I loved this book, especially for those folks who are high achievers. It is a killer book because she talks about this concept of a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And what I love about it is she speaks to the fact that it's not an either or. We might have a real growth mindset in some areas. You all have podcasts and other experiences that you're bringing people like me onto. So you've got a growth mindset. Think about the work it took to get this, pod set, this podcast going. There may be other areas that you're still a little nervous about. 
and you maybe have a fixed mindset. And so I really like that book because it allows you to kind of take a look at where are you limiting yourself and where do you know you can get some growth. And growth can be really stretching sometimes. It can be tough, but man, it's worth it. It is so worth it. So the term growth mindset is something I've come across quite a lot recently. It's especially on the personal development side, the YouTubers, the influencers. And you just mentioned from the book, you from Carol Dweck, yeah, we have a fixed mindset and a growth mindset and it's Mm -hmm. not either or, so it's and. So could you shine some more light on a fixed mindset and why people shouldn't be have a negative connotation about it because hearing all the growth mindsets that, oh, we need to have a growth mindset, but what's something good about a fixed mindset that people underestimate? Oh, wow. You know, that is, that's an interesting question. I think of what a fixed mindset can do is bring into critical thinking sometimes, which I think we're lacking. But I'll give you an example. You know, we were chatting before the podcast. My husband and I went to Italy in 2019. And I watch way too much public television and they do these extraordinary Viking ship commercials. And so I always said, I want to go on a Viking cruise. And the first reaction from my husband, he knows I tell the story, was we can't afford it. And I remember thinking, not yet. So I liked that there was the, hey, let's be cautious about this. Let's not just go put this money on the credit card and really regret it later. The flip side of it is we work together to figure out how are we going to make this happen? We couldn't afford it yet. So we started in some baby steps. And for both of us, I had traveled internationally very small. He had never left the United States. So there was a lot to do. We had to get a passport. We had to figure out a lot of things. And because we were not well-traveled, we kind of took the safe route. We hired an agent. We went the Viking cruise way, which, oh my gosh, they ruined us. They're so amazing. And we had the best trip ever. So I think I like your question, Diego, because there is, there's balance in everything. But I love the idea when somebody tosses something at you, instead of immediately going, no, we can't. What do we need to do next? What are the other options? And that's where I think you can get, you can start to do things that you never imagined being able to do. I can only imagine what a Viking cruise must feel like or, <laughs> or you know, experience that. But that's interesting. And what also surprised me or not surprised me, caught my attention is that you only recently traveled overseas, right? So what was that experience like having been in the U.S. for almost your whole life and seeing, experiencing something new on a different side of the world across the Atlantic? Like, how, how did that, you know, give you perspective? It was a gift. I remember years ago, my mother is a breast cancer survivor and I was leaving my first job out of college, which had been miserable. So she said, I'm going to take you on a cruise. And we did kind of this, the typical American cruise to the Bahamas. But what I remember very significantly about that is that there was a Haitian crisis going on where there were a lot of Haitian refugees coming through. And here we were living quite well. I mean, on a cruise ship, you are going to eat so much food. There's going to be everything is catered to you. You live very well. And then the car that took us to a particular market took us through the area where the refugees were. This was over 30 years ago, and I still remember how I felt. And it just woke me up a little bit, if that makes any sense, because so often I live what I call a working class life, but I forget how blessed I am. With the Viking cruise, most people that do those kinds of cruises have done well in life. We were the poor people on the ship, if you will, but we were able to see places, historical places that tied things together. Being able to go to Rome for three days and see where, you know, the fights were, to see the Colosseum, to see the Pantheon. The hotel we stayed in Rome was just literally, you could look out our window and see the Pantheon, which is phenomenal history. And to be able to walk on the cobblestones, you'll have to get me to stop talking about it. One of the things that we did in Rome was a food tour that took us through the former ghetto for the Jewish population 
But it wasn't from the 1940s and 30s that we think about. It was from, I think, the 17th or 1700s and what was happening to them then. And so we had this amazing food, but our guide took the time to show us markers and where the people were kept in the evenings and how they couldn't go to other parts of the city. It brings the things that you learn to reality. And I just, I want to keep doing it. It opens up your brain to so much more. It's phenomenal. All right. One last thing on the travel part before I hand it over to Shan Luke. Well, considered a part of the United States, Hawaii, why is that on your list? So I've been. I was able to go to Hawaii in high school. Our band, actually, the high school I went to, we went to Hawaii to perform for a, for a whole kind of event. And then I've been back for work. And I think that my husband's never been. I'd like to go where I'm not working. Even going as a teenager in the band, we were on a very big budget. We literally ate at the same place for every single meal, which again, we had food, so it was good. But And then the, the last time I was there, we worked. We were in an office in a building most of the days. So I'd like to go back and really experience a Pearl Harbor where I remember it and, and understand it and just take in a lot more. I think that would just be a fun, fun trip. So we may get there in the next year or two, but we've also been talking about going back to Italy. So we've got so we got to save our pennies for a while. <laughs> yeah, that's that's difficult. I have to be honest, and I totally resonate with being or going to places and then thinking like, "Hey, wait, I have missed this experience." I mean, that's that's something that that does happen. You mentioned Haiti. I think it's interesting that Haiti now, especially on the big cruises, they have a separate part of the island where the cruise ships goes to, goes to. It's like insane it, to avoid the experience that you had. So it's even more commercialized than it was, I think, 30 years ago. So it's quite insane. And actually, yes, that's that's the, the experience that you had in, in Italy. It's, it's, it's breathtaking to hear as well how you experience it and from what direction you kind of... For us, it's, it's often different. We look at different things. So even for, for people who are from Suriname, when we go to the U.S., often like people from Suriname, we only know Florida. Okay. So so the first time I went to the West Coast, for instance, I went to San Diego. I had to really, and I travel a lot, but I still had to adjust a lot because it was completely different than, than the Southeast Coast that I was used to. So it's really interesting, that dynamic. And I think also just traveling within the U.S. is also kind of different as well, experiencing the different cultures. So what we do have to ask you, is what's your favorite food experience while traveling? Oh, so when we did the Jewish food tour, it was traditional food. And so our guide, it just turned out to be my husband and I and the guide. So we had a literally, we had a guide. It was so personalized. So she took us to some places. There was someone named Anthony Bourdain, which a lot of people followed. He passed away a few years ago that he always said, this is the legitimate fried cod. This is the legitimate artichoke. And I'm not going to pronounce any of the words correctly in Italy. We still talk about that experience because not only did we have some of the best food we've ever eaten, we had the experience of understanding the history of the food, why they fried what they did, why they were eating what they were eating. And that was just amazing. And of course, you you have to admit the wine is pretty good too. I will say here in the United States, Chicago, I will continue to say Chicago is some of the best food I've ever eaten. And believe it or not, where I live in middle Tennessee, we are becoming known as a foodie place. So you just never know where you're going to be able to encounter amazing food and amazing experiences. If you think about the United States, it's such a huge place that just to travel to San Diego from Middle Tennessee, you're going to go through so many different cultural experiences. San Diego has the best weather I've ever experienced in my life. It was amazing. It is amazing weather. I have oh to admit that. Okay. So before we jump back to uh, public speaking and, and the personal development, does Tennessee have the best whiskey in the world? You know, I'm not a big drinker. I'm really such a lightweight, but I'm going to say, yeah. Because we've got some places here locally that are internationally known and you can take tours and 
Now they let you taste it. The county where the Jack Daniels whiskey is at one point was considered a dry county. So you could go and visit, but you couldn't taste it. And so things have changed a little bit. But I, I understand that. And then I understand the bourbon in, in surrounding areas is quite good as well. What's been your experience? I'm a big Jack Daniels fan. So I just had, I had to slide that one in, of course. <laughs> I've had the experience of tasting something called Buffalo Trace, which is a bourbon with cream. And again, I'm not a big drinker, oh, wow. but served but over sounds, ice. Yeah. It's decadent. It's absolutely decadent. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So back let's let's keep the podcast a little bit more dry. You've been you've been you've been speaking for, for over 20 years now. You've you've built your built your personal brand up from the ground. How how did you start? How what was kind of the the moment that you realized, hey, this is something that I actually want to do for the rest of my life? You know, I have had experiences over the years. I was in an organization when I was young that is part of the Masons and the Shriners. And, I, and there's politics around all that, and I won't go there. But they had a special organization just for the daughters. And what it required you to do was speaking parts as part of the meetings. So that's where I first experienced public speaking. And it was not successful always. I will tell a story and here we go. But I used to not be able to even tell this story. But when I taught college, I had students who were afraid of public speaking. And so I would say to them, if you have wet your pants in front of more than 40 people, you're exempt. And nobody was exempt. And they said, why that? I said, because I have. And I lived to tell it. I was 12 years old. And I had a speaking part that I was that nervous. And I came back. And I think that's one of the things I always want people to think about is being willing to move through failure. Because I could have at 12 years old said, I'll never speak aloud in front of any, any group again. I had a great support system. And I just decided to get over it. Now, I couldn't talk about it till my 30s. So nobody, I couldn't talk about it. So I think that, you know, over the years, I just kept taking advantage of opportunities. And even in my work experiences, I found that I was being given those opportunities. Hey, can you go and present? Can you put together something? And so it started, it's, very, it's been really organic and often unplanned. And then teaching college live for a number of years added to it. I've also taught through my church, small groups for years. And again, I think it just kind of gets you used to the process, but nothing super formal until I got involved in Toastmasters. Interesting. I remember you mentioning in the beginning, you were working at a law firm, not a lawyer. <laughs> so I'm curious to know more about how the speaking skills kind of came into play in this law firm. Like what was your role and how did this help develop the lawyers and the teams within that to, I don't know, accommodate clients, so to speak? Yeah. So my first law firm, I started at about 11 and a half years ago, and I just changed firms about a year ago. And one of the things that I do is technology training. So you are, whether in classroom or hybrid, and of course, a lot of it was per really in-person pre-pandemic. And so I did training for all of our new hire training. I did training for all of what's called summer associates or those people that are, are still in law school, but they're clerking with the firm in their summertime and then new associates. So it really required me to kind of change my style a little bit. Sometimes you have to be more formal or informal, depending on what you're covering. What I found was with starting the Toastmasters group at my previous firm, there were attorneys who said, you know what, I want to be better at client presentations. And that's what got them involved in the club. I want to be able to better speak extemporaneously on the fly so that if I'm at an event and someone says, tell me about your practice group, tell me about whatever, then they could do that. And we can't always get better. I don't think we ever get to the point where we're perfect at this because there's always new scenarios. Your audience always changes. And man, that is so important is who's your audience got to be willing to recognize that because you may change your style. You don't change who you are. You stay authentic, but sometimes you have to change your style a little bit with, you know, with the audience. 
So where I work now, I've done, again, public speaking in terms of just teaching classes. And then also I've done some special programs where I'm working with different departments on different skills. For example, communication. How do you get your emails read? That may sound random, but if you think about how many emails you get and how many you write, how do you make sure they get read? So there's a host of opportunities that people may not think about as a staff person in a law firm, even if you're not actually practicing law, you're supporting those that do. Is there a particular reason you chose law? I hate to just say it was a fluke. I was doing a lot of corporate training. I'd been a college instructor full-time. At the time, we had kids at home, and I was on the road three nights a week. So I saw an ad for a local law firm for a trainer, and I thought it would be nice to get off the road. And so it was really one of those where I came in contract, and within three months, they said, hey, we, we think we've got a place for you here are you interested? And life in a law firm is a whole different world, but it was, it's been a good experience. It's been a good stretch. So that's really, Diego, how it happened. I wish I could say that I had this master plan, but I think it's just kind of being open to opportunities and seeing where they go. And I just, I happened to be finishing up a training in one state. I saw this ad for a contract trainer. I was so tired of traveling I answered it, and it just kept on going from there. I actually think people are jealous. Like a lot of people wouldn't be able to make that step because you're going kind of out of your comfort zone. So on one hand, you can say like, okay, it wasn't planned. But on the other hand, it's like, it's such a logical step that hmm. people when probably hearing this are going to be like, wait, yeah, that that could have also been an, an option. And I discussed this with my wife quite a lot, that a lot of these decisions, especially when you're, when you're in a family with small children, these are like really important decisions that we don't kind of talk about. And which kind of already sex ways is kind of a segue into the book. But I do feel like we, we can make that segue already because yeah. in the book, you, you kind of talk, this is like one of the main topics, the chin hairs, of course, you know how to write captions, captions <laughs> that, that get people to, to click. So I guess that's also part of it. But what what inspired you to, to start writing this? Yeah. So when I was in my 20s, I did the graduate high school, kind of the traditional route, went to college and got out in a recession. We've had so many recessions. It's ridiculous. Got out in a recession and was thinking, am I ever going to find a job? I've worked so hard in college. I worked so hard to make good grades. I'm what you call a first-generation professional, which really has my heart because I came from a working-class background. My father was an electrician and a welder. My mother was a manager in a hardware store. So people in my family didn't go to college. They didn't take kind of that professional corporate route. So I was finding of myself in a lot of experiences that were, how do I figure this out? And then, you know, as a woman in her 20s, when you have things physically start to change for you. It's something that back then you didn't quite talk about as much. I think we're in a much different world now where people are willing to talk about flaws. They're willing to talk about things that are bothering them. It's a lot more open. I think social media has had an impact on that. And so I just found myself going, am I the only person fill in the blank? I also was not dying to have children. I wasn't dying to get married. I lived in the South, so that was still kind of a, an expectation. So I really found myself at a loss in a lot of places. And I remember thinking, I, I started just slowly asking questions of my friends and them saying, you too. And believe it or not, email had just started out. And I started gathering notes and emails all those years ago to start building this book. And I will tell you, the timing is perfect. Even though I feel like, my goodness, it took me this long to write it, because I'm now in my 50s. I have all of these experiences that I can look back and build on. I've had women read this book from ages 18 to their late 70s, and they've all said, there's something in here I can relate to, I can learn from. And then they're buying it for their nieces. They're buying it for their daughters. It's been, it's been so cool. So the timing was right. It wasn't my original timing, but I think the timing was right for the book because it really addresses 
all those things. I've raised small children. I've never had a child. My husband and I found ourselves as newlyweds. He was a single dad. I had already kind of inherited parenthood because he had custody. And then we had two grandchildren come live with us that were toddler babies. And you want to talk about flipping me upside down backwards and everything else. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. So when you're in that season, it sounds like you are, of raising children and trying to, you know, build your your career and keep your marriage intact. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. It really is. So there, there's so many things that I want to dissect, but let's let's start with, for me, of course, the the children part, like especially, and I think it's very valuable that you also manage, ma- mention keep your marriage intact, yeah. like. Like what are what are what is a simple thing that is not often talked about? So I'll give you an example. Like I'm I'm pretty. I just celebrated my tenth anniversary with my wife last exactly. week. Thanks. And I we were talking with my 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 in laws, and I was telling my in laws like, hey, listen, this is also thanks to you. And they were like, yeah, we didn't do that much. And I was like, well, you set the example. You you showed me a situation where I can marry a woman. That has both their parents, her parents are still married, and my parents mm. are still married. And it's kind of rare. Like you you don't realize how weird it is for to be in a relationship where both people in the relationship actually have, have parents that are still together, that are married, both married and still together. Because there also have been phases where when I grew up, like as a teenager, it was a phase that marriage was no longer, it wasn't, it wasn't hip. It's like people were living together. Because they realize, like, oh wow, you don't have to get married, essentially. And so, if I realize how rare it is, and I also realize that for me, finding somebody to spend my, the rest of my life with who had a similar experience that I had, having both parents together, was important to me. I didn't realize that when I was like 22 or something. It's just something that I became aware of in a much later state. So for me, as as well from your personal experience, like. How important is is understanding how to keep your 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 relationship intact? It's critical, and you know, so often when there's littles around, you don't even know your own brain. Some days, I mean, it's it's the it, what is that? The days are long, but the years are short. One of those little boys that we had for seven years, he's going to be nineteen this year. How did that happen? And you know, I also I write about this in the book. If you're in a blended family, and I do want to also address your question, I think having a, a good, solid counselor is critical. It's just critical because there's so many elements that can just be kryptonite. For my husband and I, we're opposites. People used to look at us and church and go, how did that happen? Because if you were to meet us, you would see opposites. What we've learned is that we're complementary opposites. And we have a solid, common foundation. That makes all the difference in the world. It doesn't mean there are days when he could have killed me and I could have killed him. And and it would, I mean, it's just, I, I don't think we should sugarcoat these things. I also think that at the end of the day, when you are blessed with the right person, it is the best thing that could happen to you and for you. But that is... Keeping a marriage intact, it's a daily. We have almost 19 years of marriage, and it's it's hard. There were years harder than others when you have small children. And then we went through the empty nesting years almost overnight. And we really had to kind of figure out who we were as a couple again, because there wasn't talking about the children's schedule or who ate what or what they're wearing or, dear God, where are their shoes? We had to figure out who we were as a couple and learn how to communicate all over again. So I think it's kind of giving yourself the notice that it's aspirational, that it's ongoing, and then just really working to be the best version of yourself you can be and have good character. My husband's way the better person than I am. Nobody wants to, nobody needs to live with me. He's totally the better person. But it, it takes, it's a daily, it's a daily concentration. And then forgiving yourself when things aren't going great and knowing you can restart. It's not an either or, it's, it's, it's a journey, if that makes any sense. Just a side note, when you mentioned complementary opposites, because 
when you said opposites, all right, how did that happen? So what do you mean when you say complementary opposites? You say the foundation is the same. Like, yeah. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. So we have a shared faith. That makes a huge difference in that we have a shared faith. So from a values perspective, from what we see as right and wrong, it's very common. It doesn't mean we haven't had arguments. It doesn't mean we haven't had disagreements on different things. We also have both came from a working class background. So when we look at our mom and dad, it's really interesting you said that, John Luke. We realized how weird we were because we got to looking around and we said, oh my gosh, both our both sets of our parents stayed married and they cared and they cared about us and they worked hard and and we were saved a lot of a lot of angst because of that and it helped us. Now my husband was divorced. He married very young, had children young. So when I met him, he had been through the divorce, which is a whole other world. And when you get married into that, coming from where I was, it is difficult. Blended families are hard. They can work, but they're hard. But when you think about, for us, Diego, we have a common faith. I think we also learned, there's a personality profile I'm certified in called the color code. And I actually learned about it from a speaker that we both heard and said, I'm a red, you're a white, and this explains everything. And that's when I started exploring it and ended up getting certified in it. And I now teach and work with teams on it. So we're both logical. When we're being grownups and acting like grownups, we are both coming from a place of logic. So there's kind of the complementary. Now, I'm a lot more extroverted than he is. I verbally process where he's more introverted. And so where I gain energy, I will be higher than a kite after our call today. For him, he gains energy from downtime. He needs a lot of downtime. I like people time. So that's where we are opposites, but it doesn't mean that it's not a positive. It actually works pretty well in social situations and can be a good. And there are some things he's more extroverted about. Get him talking about sports, y'all. He's on. It's, he, it's going. And I did not grow up with a father who emphasized sports. My dad watched boxing, and that was about as heavy as he got into sports, where if you live in the southeastern United States, American football, dear college football, it's a thing. And I did not have that growing up. So that was an actual surprise in my marriage because he loves his college football. Thanks for sharing that. And interesting that you mentioned the, the color code because there's so many personality systems out there now because one of the more popular ones is the Myers-Briggs. I also did a Gallup Strengths. You also talk about introvert, extrovert. So like Jordan Peterson had something like that. Like what makes the color code like different from all these personality systems like for you, like what caught your attention with color code that you thought, oh, okay, this works for me? Yeah. I First of all, I think I'm a late bloomer when it comes to self-awareness. I'm still such a work in progress. But what color code does, it's been around for 30 plus years. It looks at what they call your driving core motive. What's kind of innately within you as far as how you're driven? It doesn't mean that you haven't adjusted and built character and those kinds of things over the years as you develop, but it's that driving core motive, kind of what's at your core. And that really appealed to me, Diego, because it helped me understand why so many times in different situations over the years, I have felt like a fish out of water. For example, I've always been told that I'm intimidating. And I would say something like, what's intimidating about me? I'm five foot two and I'm blonde. And people would go, what you just did is intimidating. And so I have a real blind spot around the fact that I'm told how direct I am and I don't see that. And yet I receive that feedback very regularly. So what Color Code did for me is it really built my self-awareness and helped me grow that. It helped me understand how to communicate better. I think at the end of the day, so many of these profiles I like to consider them communication tools in your toolbox. And the reason I speak to that is I've seen a lot of people, especially young people, take some of these profiles that are out there and make them their identity. 
And I think that honestly is garbage. It is, it is, you have a, a unique purpose for being in this world. You have a unique identity. And I don't like that when people, I've seen people go, well, I can't drink this kind of coffee anymore because my personality told me that's nonsense. It's funny, but it's nonsense. So no offense about, because I love coffee. And the doctor says I can't have as much as I want to anymore. But I think that's what made Color Code a differentiator for me. I like things like DISC. I think DISC is really valuable. The other thing about Color Code is it doesn't change. So for example, if you took Color Code today, and I can provide you all a link to take the free version. Your primary driving core motive doesn't change. You take it five years from now. I've had people do this to me to check it. It really doesn't change. Whereas some of these other personality profiles are more about your response to your environment. So you may adjust. They all have value. But I like to keep it in check from the perspective of, does this help me communicate better? Does it help me to understand myself better and then relate to others better? And I think that's where color code has been a game changer. It even helps me with coaching clients. I always do a color code profile before I coach someone individually because it helps me understand what communication style I need to use. Who do I need to be more direct with? Who needs time to digest before we go to the next thing? There's just a lot of really good skills that are in that. And it helps, it helps us to understand how we better communicate. If you had to give a, say, high-level, one-minute breakdown of the different colors, how would you describe each color? Like the, the six sure. primary and secondary colors? So there's four. four. Yeah, okay. so there's four. Red, blue, white, and yellow. Red, driving core motive, is power. Now, power is a negative connotation to a lot of people. Reds are your action takers. They're going to get you from point A to point B. Blue are your connectors. The driving core motive is intimacy. And Diego, I always reframe that because people think of intimacy from the physical perspective. And blues are your quality people. They are your loyal people. Service. They want to know you as a person. They really hate small talk. White. I married a white. Driving core motive is peace. They're all about steady state. And I will tell you some of the greatest clarity I get is from talking with someone with that personality because they drive from logic. So they can kind of filter through all the emotion and the stuff and kind of get to the core. And then finally, yellow. The driving core motive for a yellow is fun. And for people who typically find this as their primary color, at first, they kind of don't want to tell you. It's a beautiful thing. Yellows bring the sunshine. They are inclusive. They want everyone to be a part of whatever's going on. You want them at your party. What a gift. Now, obviously, we're all individuals. So if we th think about this as a piece of pop, we probably all have slices of each of the colors but they're going to vary based on our personality. So that's kind of your, I think I did it in a minute. I'm not sure. Yeah, that was, that was amazing. That was, that <laughs> was, that was really good. That was like, just give a straight, straight explanation of everything. And it was, I think it was very close to a minute or even under a minute. So that was, thank you for that. That's kind of a <laughs> nugget that we get to take out of the podcast and you get to share as well. So, so, so from that perspective, how much, how much has, has also getting a better grasp and better understanding of self-awareness, how, how has that kind of influenced, has that influenced the book as well or even the process to writing the book? Yes, it has. As a matter of fact, I did a interview for the book and one of the questions was, did you get any criticism it, about your book? And I did. I actually have a friend from college read the book sent me a message and said, we need to talk. There's a couple of things that are really bothering me. So by having an understanding of my first reaction for how I tend to go into situations where there's disagreement, it helped me to kind of think a few things. Now, there's a term that I learned a few years ago from a book called Crucial Conversations, Assume Noble Intent. Some people rephrase it as assume positive intent. What that does is it resets you. And because I knew this person, I've known her since I was a teenager, 
I knew her coming at me with questions and concerns was from a place of kindness, from, was from a place of good, if that makes any sense. So I really wrestled with what she had to say, but it helped me. I didn't change what I wrote in the book, but it helped me be prepared to speak to it in future. I also had a few friends that were very different from me, whether they have different lifestyles, different faith base, all those kinds of things, read a draft of the book. Because what I wanted this book to do was to be authentic to me and my beliefs while also being accessible to everyone. I hope that makes sense. And so one of the things that I knew is by sending it out to them, I knew there would be things that I could use to adjust in the book. So I write in the book about drinking. I write in the book about choosing while I was in college not to drink a drop. There is a tremendous amount of alcoholism on both sides of my family. My immediate mom and dad did not suffer from that, but literally on both sides of the family, it's rampant. So I remember when I went off to college, I said, I'm not drinking. And that was, it was amazing the pressure I got for not doing that. It was amazing the pressure I got in my first jobs out of college because I didn't drink. And so I wanted to write in the book why I chose not to without it coming out sounding judgy and condemning to people who choose to drink. I hope that makes sense. And so the feedback from this one friend was really helpful around that because she said, you know, these pieces are coming off as if you are making a judgment versus, hey, here's why I chose. And so knowing that, having done these kinds of personality profiles, it, it helps me be more open and helps me to better dialogue, I think, with opposing thoughts. And I got the book got better as a result, which that's a win-win. Speaking of the writing process, getting that feedback and everything, you started collecting these anecdotes way in your 20s, this, these little emails, etc. Like, what's it like writing a book over so many years? Like, you have artists releasing books like every year or something like that. But having such a long trajectory of, you know, really putting what you've learned in a written form like that, what was the process like doing it? You know, so I didn't touch it for years. I mean, I picked around with it in my 20s and then I ended up going to graduate school and then working and all, you know, all the things. And but when we found we were empty nesting, I took I'm not just a full time job person. I've got to have a full time job, but I need more. And so I told my husband, I said, I've got to do something. Or I'm going to lose my mind. And so that's when the Toastmasters came into play. It's when I started my consulting business. And I really got to thinking, what have I not accomplished? that I wanted to. And it was this book. And so I have a friend who did all the illustrations. He's a phenomenal graphic artist. And so I just got to talking with him. He designed my business logo. I said, hey, I want to give you the title of this book and I want you to come up with the, the cover. So Diego, I had the cover for the book like 18 months before I ever had the book written. And it's literally right over here in front of me as kind of almost like that inspiration. And I thought every, every day I'm seeing that when I'm in my home office, I'm seeing the cover and the cover was perfect. He took all of these ideas and then he took the book and at the beginning of every chapter, he drew someone that related to that chapter. And at the end of the book, he put a picture of me that he drew with all of the characters around me. What a gift. So for me, it was, I had to get some sort of, if you want to call it a vision board, it, for, it was for me, it was the cover. And that cover was what inspired me to start taking all those notes and start combining them into something. And then I got involved in, you know, I need somebody to help me edit. I need a way to organize chapters and all of that. But I'm starting to gather kind of those anecdotes for the next book because people have asked, when's the second one? My husband said, no, are you kidding me? You're going through this again. So I'd like to do it within the next couple of years. I have an idea for the title and I'm just kind of gathering material because so much of this is my own life experience and learning. And that's something I'm looking at kind of in the next couple of years. And I also have a friend who I'm actually help coaching him. He's in his 30s and he's decided he wants to write a book. 
So he reached out and now I'm getting to take that experience and kind of help share it with somebody else, which is really cool. Why did your husband say no? Because it's all consuming. I mean, if you think about it, if you work a full-time job and you have a commute and then you're writing a book and you have a side hustle coaching, yeah, John Luke's nodding. I mean, thankfully he's very low maintenance. He's cooking dinner right now. He doesn't need a lot from me, but there was a lot of weekends where all I did was was still working. And so I think he's been through this journey with me. And so he was like, really? Because he heard all of my whining and my overwhelm. I mean, it's a process. It's a process. It is, it is a process. I made a really difficult decision two weeks ago that in order to have my book finished by this year, I had to sacrifice a couple of other things I really wanted to. And I, I, I feel, yeah. And and still, but 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 from the perspective now that you have written written the book, it has been published. It's it's available on Amazon. It's got amazing reviews of people, like you said, saying like, "Hey, I really needed this." Like, there's there's no like four or three star reviews. It's like really saying like, "Hey, I really enjoyed this book." I do have to ask because you already mentioned you have the background in not necessarily just writing, but also writing. And coming up with with titles and, and subjects for for email for emails. So the process behind choosing the title for the book was it like the cover that was kind of already staring at you and saying like, "Hey, this," or was it something where in the end you were like, "This is it," and you had a aha moment and you were like, "Okay, this is going to be the title of the book." Yeah. So the book title actually I came up with in my twenties. I have friends that when I started posting on Facebook about it, they were like, I remember you talking about this. I remember you saying you're going to write this book. And one story, I had to reach out to a girlfriend that she wrote this amazing story. And I said, can I use it in the book? You wrote me an email, you know, back in the 90s. And I said, I want to use this story anonymously. And I want your permission. She's like, yeah, go. So the, the literally the chin hairs and other things mama didn't tell you, that has been around for 20 something years. What I had to do was figure out the rest of it. And so it's that from surviving to thriving in your 20s and 30s, that last half kind of the subtitle is what I had to really kind of brainstorm on, John Luke, because it needed to be finished, if that makes sense, so that if somebody's looking at it, they kind of know where we're going. And it's still an off title. It's still a unique title. And I love it. I think it really immediately calls to what so many women never discuss or they only discuss it quietly. And it's just one of those real life things that happen. And it's been so much fun because people will find memes and they'll send them to me and they'll go, this should be in your next book. And I had the guy that did all the illustrations. I sent him an early draft of the book and I said, how do you feel about doing illustrations? You did the cover. I want you to do illustrations. And I have to tell you, again, this is one of those things where you learn new perspectives. The diversity that he put in the drawings, I could have never done that myself. And they are awesome. And so that made the book even better. I have a page in the back of the book where there's a picture of him. And he's a really cool person. He's a He plays video games. He's really into kind of an urban aesthetic, which look at me, okay, let's just be real and talk about opposites, but what a great collaboration this has been. And what he did for the illustrations just made the book so much richer. So the title itself, really, I've had it for 20 some years. And then it was just kind of exploring. There's a title, a, a chapter in the book that says, when are you going to get you one of those? Terrible grammar, but it's a true story. Everything in the book is true. I had a cousin who saw me playing with my now married 20-something niece when she was little. At the time, I wasn't married. I didn't have children. And he said to me in his Tennessee voice, when are you going to get you one of those? And I remember thinking, that's a chapter title because it's all about making the decision, do I want to be married? Do I want to have children? What is the right timing for me? And, you know, I think that everybody's journey is different. I've never had children of my own, but I've raised three. And I have four children now that I call, they call me Nana. If you had ever told me anybody would call me Nana, I probably would not have been very nice to you about it. But 
you know, you change and you grow. And so I write about that in the book because I think that it's important to be reflective and intentional about how you live your life when you can. Wow. I, I, I love the conversation. Unfortunately, we're close to the end. So Diego, I feel like, can we do one over under? Do you want to do one over under, yeah. overrated, underrated each? Let's do one each. Yeah. So, so Kelly, yeah, go ahead, Diego. Yeah. No, so Kelly, basically, usually have, at the end of the show, we have a segment, overrated, underrated. We give you a topic. You tell us if you think it's overrated or underrated. No need okay. to elaborate, you know, a lot. But if it's somewhat unexpected, we're going to ask you like, hmm, why do you think that? But okay. why don't you go first, Chandler? So I, I just, because I kind of dug into your history. And I see an MBA there. So I have to ask the, the, the question that a lot of young people are going through now. Is an MBA overrated or underrated? Overrated, but. And I say that because I have a generic MBA. It doesn't have a specialty. That held me back. So if you're going to take the money and the time to get your master's degree, pay attention to what you want out of it and what skill set you want to gain from it. Yeah. Yeah, that's good advice. Definitely. And mine is just listening to that other complementary opposite relationship you had with your illustrator. Video games, overrated or underrated? I would have said overrated, but a friend of mine posted on LinkedIn today how they're actually starting to see a skill set that can be applied in certain technological areas because of the ability to multitask and handle several things at once, that this may be a cool opportunity for some people. So I hate to put the butt in there because I would have, <laughs> two days ago, I would have said overrated. And then I read this article and went, wow. And so that's why I'm going to say the, the butt because I'm not sure the jury's out yet. Fair enough, fair enough. I also take like, I, I studied like, my first master's is, is a master's in leisure studies. So the second one is urban development, which is a little different. But the first one is in, in leisure studies. So in, in leisure, leisure, I don't know, is it leisure or leisure in, in, in the US? I think it just depends on your class. I, okay. I say leisure, but I bet okay. some people say leisure. Okay, so in, in leisure <laughs> studies, it's, it's really interesting because the joke that's made most often is, oh, you're doing leisure studies. Oh, so you know how to get a, do your spare time. And, and I was like, no, I may, I learn, I'm learning how to make money off your spare time. And, and that's also the interesting with, with the gaming industry. Because the gaming industry is actually growing and growing, there's also a side to it that you can actually build for people's entertainment. And that used to be, and still is to this day, it's like, yeah, but can you earn a living from entertainment? And that's kind of that that dynamic is also kind of changing as as generations go by and as decades go by. So that's a really thing, but at the end, just for something that <laughs> actually happened quite recently. Of course, we do want to know, Kelly, before we let you go, what's next and where can can people if people want to purchase the book, what where can they find it and what's what's the next step for you? Is the is the part two gonna come? Yes or no? Yeah. So I did record the book in audio for people who are not physical book readers. So you can get it on Kindle, paperback, and I also recorded it via Audible. That was fun. I was in the studio of a 20-something guy, and he just kept rolling when I was doing the recording. We had a good time together. And so you can buy it in all those formats on Amazon. I'm going to continue to take my next steps in my speaking, coaching. So I love working with teams. And that's not going to stop. I, I continue to work with teams that are trying to figure out how to help communicate better. And I want to continue to develop myself as well. So that's got to always be in there for the what's next. So that's that's where we're at, is figuring out the next chapter. Life in your 50s, it's a bit different. <laughs> oh, that's going to be the sub subtitle for the next series. 40s and 50s. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Awesome. So check her out, kellyknowles.net and slash gin hairs if you want to know more about the book and where to find it. Awesome. 
Kelly, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for sharing with us and making us more conscious about our ums and us in the beginning. <laughs> with that being said, Jean-Luc, any final thoughts? Yes, Kelly, it has been a pleasure. It has been amazing having you around. Thank you so much for giving us insight, not just from a female perspective, but in general and how you can thrive as well. We really look forward to seeing more. And even also, we're going to link all the things that we discussed in the, in the description of this episode. So feel free to check out the links as well. For those who have tuned in, thank you so much for watching. Thank you for supporting Social Confluence. And we'll see you next time with another edition of Social Confluence. Bye-bye. Thanks, y'all. It's been an honor.